Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I am indeed Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a special chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We do have a special chat room, and the conversation is always very stimulating. You can come, you know, check out the chat room, and you don't have to speak at all. You can just see the information that gets posted there. But, of course, I would much rather you actually came through the door and said hello to me, too, because I like to meet all of you. So do come to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's Spotlight, we turn our attention to the notion of happiness. If you ask, what would make you happier? Most people will frame their answer around what they might get. If I had more money, I would be happier. If I had more time, I would be happier. If I had less stress, or a better job, or... And the list goes on and on. When we look at the research data, however, we discover that none of the above provides for lasting happiness. Indeed, if you tend to be gloomy and depressed, you can win the lottery, and within a very short time, you will return to your gloomy, depressed, familiar self. In fact, research has shown us that folks who win the lottery are less happy one year later than they were before winning. Common sense and experience both inform us that when we get what we want, the new car, the pay raise, and so forth, that soon the newness wears off, and we're again thinking about what we want next. It's clear that lasting happiness doesn't come from what we can get. And if that's so, what does it take to find and live a truly happy life? One of my favorite exercises is to convolute existing models and ask, what if? So what if instead of what we can get out of life, we ask, What can I give to life? The data is very interesting when we evaluate life from this perspective. Using research from Israel, we find that when folks gather in a bomb shelter and support one another, as opposed to sit alone in isolation, they are able to maintain positive attitudes and avoid depression and anxiety experienced by those who choose isolation. Research at UC San Diego showed that when students modeled the behavior of happy people, they became happier and enjoyed a higher level of life satisfaction. Chief among the behaviors to be copied was that of helping others. Giving of yourself to those in need is a rewarding act that the brain is hardwired to recognize. The fact is, Doing something as simple as writing a check to a charity we care about leads to the release of our feel-good neural chemicals or endorphins, the body's own natural opiates. I have argued for years, based on my research, that true self-esteem, 
comes from what we give and not what we get. I am convinced that it's when we know our lives truly matter that we gain genuine self-approval. Our highest self-actualization comes from the realization that we have in some way made life better for someone else. There is no greater warm, fuzzy feeling than the one we feel when we have gone to the aid of someone in need and been able to help them. Research shows us clearly what we all intuitively know. We are made in such a way to find true happiness in helping others. It is the time of the year that we are all thinking about giving, and I would urge you to include giving to those who are most in need. Take an afternoon to help out in a shelter, or with your church community in delivering food to the needy, or in any other volunteer way that you can feel good about. Give yourself the gift of giving this Christmas. I can tell you this. Every Christmas, I think about the first year I really practiced my own teaching. Together with my co-host at the time, Mr. Jim Kirkwood, using our radio show and my friends at South Jordan Police Department, we urged our listeners to help us feed the local shelter, to obtain the food and gifts for the homeless in Salt Lake City. We fed the shelter on that evening, and we had gift bags containing everything from hygiene items to winter socks for all. I watched as uniform officers delivered food trays and gift bags to a very large crowd. And then one big, scruffy-looking fellow stood. The man was huge, lumberjack huge, and very powerful-looking. He spoke in a deep, booming voice, and what he said brought tears to many eyes. I wish I had recorded the event, but I must rely on my memory. His words paraphrased went something like this. Quote, I have been hassled by you cops so many times, and yet you are feeding me and giving me gifts. I have had so many bad thoughts about all of you, but tonight I just want to hug you. I am so grateful, and you can't know how much this means to all of us. I will never see a police uniform the same again. Thank you. I can tell you this as well. No officer there that evening will ever see the homeless quite the same way again. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? He had me off. Would you believe I'm talking away to everyone? <laughs> He's turned me off. So, I mean, service can sound like it's not related to happiness and self-improvement and all of those things. But as you have said time and time again, it makes a huge difference. And isn't that what self-improvement is about? It's about feeling happier from the inside out, the happiness that really lasts, that is genuine. It's not the type of thing that, you know, you buy a new car and then that happiness kind of fades really quickly and you get that promotion and that fades too. No, it is about bringing meaning to your life, and that's what your work's all been about. I think it's fabulous. Right here on this radio show, we have talked to atheists, agnostics, to, to the secular community. We have talked to the very theistic, very deeply spiritual and religious community. And the one thing that's in common with both of them is that 
regardless of what you believe in terms of the exterior, you know, we'll call it the artifact. Here are the principles of my beliefs, okay? It is the activity of helping other people. It is the activity of sharing, giving, and caring that defines a person's life. And in both camps, from the Michael Shermer uh, on this radio show right here to... uh, well, you name the most theistic spiritual person. I'll let that go. That's the defining aspect of our life. And to me, that's where self-esteem begins. It doesn't begin because I have an award. It begins because when I think about my life, it matters. It's mattered to someone, someone I've been able to help in some way. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Erin Prophet, and we discussed her life as the daughter of the self-proclaimed prophet and founder of the Church Universal and Triumphant, Elizabeth Clare Prophet. Mark wrote, I was a member of the Summit Lighthouse for over 17 years and left back in the 90s. I got in soon after high school, but felt it was time to become independent and find myself outside of group. I have no regrets for having been in the Summit Lighthouse all that time. I learned a lot about the spiritual journey, which is sometimes not all that comfortable, but joyous nonetheless. I got to know Erin Prophet when I was in the Summit Lighthouse. She is as genuine now as she was back then. I wish her the best in her search for the truth. Brian wrote, I feel like I walked into a temporal field of rabbit holes after this show. Which one to slide down first? Hippity-hop, hippity-hop. Then I get the refrain, They're coming to take me away, ha-ha. I'd say this is provocative enlightenment at its best. Who needs answers? Let's just ask bigger and bigger questions. We, mm, does this ride come with a barf bag? Can't say I have found my center but at least I know exactly where my personal laugh track button is. <laughs> well, you got mine too. Cute, Brian. Really cute. Is that a good one, huh, Rap? That was funny. Charles wrote, and now she's an agnostic. Her brother is an atheist. And as for giving up sex, well, now it's kundalini yoga. Wow, what a difference. You know, Charles, I have argued for a long time. Watch out for what you resist you may just become. Martha wrote, I loved your interview with Aaron Prophet. I bought her book right away. She is so down-to-earth and honest. Thank you for bringing her to your show. All right, moving on. Ravinder has been taking the phones lately because she likes speaking with you. Naomi wrote, yesterday morning out of nowhere I caught myself visualizing. I had no plans to do so, it just happened. I usually find it hard to visualize, so this was definitely the inner talk affirmations. And I went in for a refresher class yesterday, and I noticed I was more comfortable in my skin, and people reacted positively. In my last class, I was always in my head, wondering and going back and forth. I was uncomfortable around others, and that was reflected back to me. This seems something is happening. This means something is happening. I'm so grateful. I just needed to know I was going in the right direction, and now I can continue. I know something is happening. Thank you, Ravinder, for answering my question. You do like feedback like that, now, don't you, Rav? I do, and that is why, especially around the holiday season, I'm answering the phones more and more because it 
it kind of feeds into the spirit of Christmas and all of that stuff. The fact that all the work we do is doing some great good out there in people's lives. It's very personal. It's very real. It's very tangible. Why let the staff help everybody? You want to get in there too, huh? Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. Now yeah, this we, we actually fight to get to the phones. <laughs> All right. This letter came to you as well, Ravinder. Uh-huh. Roxana wrote, Dear Ravinder, years ago I purchased a group of Eldon CDs. One in particular, Have It All. Soaring self-esteem has been very valuable. I keep it in my CD player and play it with my earphones as I go to sleep and or if I awaken during the night and have difficulty getting back to sleep. I am very grateful for his work. My philosophy has been similar to his I am responsible. Please forgive me. God bless you. I love you. Thank you. Please continue to send me your emails. It's comforting to know that Eldon is here in our world, especially now when the world is in need of his energy. Newsletters. You do some really remarkable newsletters, Ravinder, and she's responding to that email. And everybody should know that they can get this newsletter without charge. You know, they can subscribe to it. And to tell us how to do that quickly. Simply go to innertalk.com or eldentaylor.com, whichever you prefer, and subscribe right there. I am sharing more and more of our personal stories in the newsletter as well. And uh, we are getting some really good feedback from that. I plan on presenting the truth the whole truth you know so i'm not gonna pad things out and pretend everything's fantastic it'll be real it'll be you know exactly what tools you can use when inner talk does help and when it doesn't help it'll be everything and yeah we are i'm having lots of fun with that and you know we're opening up and uh i'm getting loads of great feedback that's That's really cool it's a great newsletter tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The dragnet of newsletters, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jerry wrote, I love your show and I adore what your Intertalk CDs have done for me and my family. Beverly wrote, I have tried other subliminal programs without much of anything to show for it, but when I used your weight loss program, everything changed, including my dress size. Thank you for developing a technology that really works. Janet wrote, thank you, Eldon, and your lovely wife, Ravinder, for your show. I really miss tuning in on Hay House Radio to Provocative Enlightenment. I have now found you, however, in other places, and it's always worth the pause. Keep up the great shows or classes as they are. Aston wrote, Hey, Elton, I've been following your stuff for a while. I have to say it's some of my favorite. Your book, Mind Programming, was one of those books that fell off the shelf at the bookstore for me. Anyways, I thought I'd just reach out and say hello and thank you. Pat wrote reading my Pat wrote regarding my book Choices and Illusions, which by the way is finally back in stock at your favorite online seller. Quote, great book, everyone should read. This book makes you think in a whole other perspective. I must read a must read for it may change your life. Boy, and I stumbled on that one. Thanks for the letter, Pat. I didn't mean to stumble on it. And Judy wrote Your book, Choices and Illusions, is what I'm giving every member of my family for Christmas this year. It's not only a terrific read with great humor and momentous aha moments, but it literally has provided new meaning in my life. Thank you so very much for your work and research. Well, I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. You uh, make all of what we do worthwhile. Thank you. I did, however, get a comment today on one of our 
we put our shows up at YouTube, and the comment was, it seems you never read bad comments. Well, I do read bad comments. If you've got a bad <laughs> comment out there, you know, a negative thought, you you know, whatever, send it to me. I'll read it. We'll discuss it. You know, we have done that in the past. Some people have thought I've bullied a guest or, you know, I wasn't reverent enough of someone or something. You know, I mean, hey, send it to me. That's what this show is about. We're not afraid of dealing with the provocative. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. Now to this week's show, Science, Order, and Creativity, with our special guest, Professor David Pete. I'm going to share something with all of you. Some 25 years ago or so, I first read Science, Order, and Creativity by David Bohm and David Pete. My friend... Professor William Gilory, chair of the chemistry department at the University of Utah at the time, uh, and I had more than one conversation about this meaningful contribution to how we view the endeavor of science and its interaction with something much more than verifiable observation. We dedicated special inquiry meetings to the book. Indeed, the entire notion of an implicate order behind the observable explicate was implicitly embedded with consciousness creating itself in such a manner as to be absolutely compelling. So for me, it is a very special honor to be able to chat with today's guest, for he was not only a close friend and co-author of David Boehm's, but his biographer as well. So let me tell you a little about Professor David Peat. David Peat was born in the suburb of Liverpool, England in 1938. He obtained his Ph.D. from Liverpool University and moved to the National Research Council of Canada in Ottawa, where he carried out research in theoretical physics. In 1971, Professor Pete took a sabbatical at the University of London with Roger Penrose and David Bohm. After returning to Canada, Pete left the National Research Council and continued to collaborate with David Bohm, as well as turned to writing his own books. David Pete is the author of over 20 books. He has organized meetings of artists and scientists as well as native Canadian elders with scientists. In 1996, he and his wife moved to the medieval hilltop village of Perry near Siena where they created the Perry Center for New Learning. The center has a visitor's program as well as running seminars and conferences uh, so on that, let's get this man himself in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor David Pete. Hi, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good evening to you, I believe. You're in. Yes, uh... Good evening to me. Good morning to you. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, just had one other thing we mentioned about David Bohm. We, with uh, a film company based in Ireland, we're hoping to make a documentary film about David Bohm. And that how so wonderful. people want to look at that, it would be www.thebaumdocumentary.org. Give it again, Professor. www.thebaumdocumentary.org. And Baum is, Baum is spelled B-O-H-M. B-O-H-M, For everybody that's out there. right, yeah. Since At the moment, st- we're trying to raise funds, but, uh, you know, we hope uh, we hope to get this film underway next year. That would be great. Well, at the website, is there a place where people can just kind of donate? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think there is, yeah, yeah. So you're interested, okay, you know, because, I I mean, I was looking at the Perry Center earlier. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm going to seize on an opportunity. Uh, 
since you went straight to uh, the film that you're doing, I, I have to ask you, what is it like to spend a sabbatical with Roger Penrose? And, and for all of you out there who don't know who this is, that's Stephen W. Hawking's mentor and the Nobel Prize winner David Bohm. What was that like? Um, it was great. It was Penrose. I uh, would go uh, once a week to his seminars, and he used to sit in a comfortable chair, and he had this great ability to reach behind him and write on the blackboard. <laughs> so he's looking oh, wow. forward at us, and he's reaching be- with his hand behind to write on the blackboard. And it was quite amazing just to enter that, that sort of mathematical mind of Roger Penrose. It's very exciting, very moving. It was a great yeah. experience. And then one day I'd had a student, a PhD student, uh, when I was at Queens, and he'd gone over to do a postdoc at the physics department at Beckbeck College. So I went over to see him, and I see that this elderly man talking to a student, they're arguing, and the student says, there is no absolute. And the old man says, oh, is that an absolute statement? So I followed him out, <laughs> I've got to talk to you. And he said, my name is David Bohm, come and see me tomorrow. So that was it. We'd... Uh, We'd go and, you know, for the first two weeks, we'd be talking about physics and stuff like that. And then one evening, I'm at home, and I phone him and say, I thought we were talking about physics, but we're not. He says, oh, what are we talking about? We're talking about the nature of consciousness. He says, very good. Come and see me tomorrow. <laughs> so then we, we entered this other world, you know, which eventually led to, his, you know, his involvement with Krishnamurti, the nature of consciousness, language, all those issues. Right, and, and we're going to get there, too. Listen, Professor, we like to get three principal objectives accomplished with our guest. Who's the messenger? What is the message, and how do we use it? So if we may, sir, let's begin with your childhood. Were you popular as a child? Did you like school? Were you involved in um, athletics? I wasn't all that keen on school. Uh, I liked doing physics and chemistry. I really liked that, and, and I had a, a coal shed. And I used to do, I used to go to the local pharmacy and got very friendly with the pharmacist, and he gave me chemicals that he wasn't supposed to give me, like spuming nitric acid and stuff like that. <laughs> and I did experiments in that coal shed. And one day I did a thing with glycerine and, and acid, and I realized, oh, God, I've made nitroglycerine. I was so scared. <laughs> I, I ran in and went up to bed, and I was about 8 o'clock. Oh, I hope my father doesn't go and get any cold tonight because <laughs> it'll blow up. Well, luckily, no, it didn't blow up. <laughs> but, yeah, I was very keen on doing experiments. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, well, not necessarily that keen on school, but I was very, uh, I had a great relationship with the art uh, teacher, the the art master. It was it was fantastic. Uh, and that, all, that aroused my interest in art that lasted all my life. And I have many friends who are, you know, good, great artists, Anish Kapoor and, and Anthony Gormley in England, people in the States. So I you're, always have that interest in art. Yeah, yeah. You're a, a prodigious writer. Uh, when did when did your love for writing Pardon? enter the scene? Oh, uh, well, I used to like to keep notebooks, uh, and then when I when I left, um, I decided that there was the you know you know there was a nuclear accident in the states, and I decided right. to write a book about the Canadian versus the American nuclear program. It was called the Nuclear Book, and. Then after that, I, I wrote another book because uh, I like detective stories and murder mysteries. So I wrote a book about the armchair guide to murder and detection. And then I began to write more serious books, you know, in, 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 on science, super strings, things like that. And then, of course, the one with David Ball. That was very exciting to write with David Ball. 
I could tell a little bit about that. Uh, we we would meet in the morning. I'd go to his house uh, in North London at the end of the tube, and we'd go for a long walk. He loved to walk. That was his thing. He was in Who's Who. He said it, that was his hobby, was walking. We'd go for long, long walks, and we'd just talk and talk and talk and talk and then go back, have lunch, and then he would go and have a sleep, and I would write up the notes of what we talked about. Then he'd come down, and we'd talk a little bit, and then the next day and the next day. So that's how it was. It, it was The book was written by talking. He would That's talk, great. and I'd remember, and then I'd, I'd write it down, and then we'd go over it together and make corrections. All right, hold it there. When we come back, we've got a hard break here. When we come back, we'll pick it right up there. I want to know about this Cold Fusion book you wrote as well. All right. We're speaking with Professor David Pete about his life, work, and books, including science order and creativity, specifically synchronicity, blackfoot physics, and the seven life lessons of chaos as well as infinite potential, the story or the biography of David Bohm. You can learn more about him by visiting fdavidpete.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The praise for Elton Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Could you leave me when I needed 
And welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor David Pete about his life, work, and books. Now we ask our guests for up to three songs, songs that have some special significance to them. Music can elicit some deeply emotional states of being, and in many ways our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. To say nothing of the fact it's been demonstrated repeatedly, it can even wake us up from those... um, those states where we're otherwise sound asleep. So now, we just played Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush. Why is this one special to you, Professor Pete? And how does it tell uh, us about whom you are? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, the book, the, book, <laughs> the novel, Wuthering Heights, is uh-huh. one of my favorites. And then, you know, the film. Uh, oh, gosh, the film. You know, when they made the film, uh, at the end, uh, you know, Kathy's dead and he wanders the, the moors. Uh, but the, the producer of the film says, oh, we can't land it like that. They have to meet again up in heaven. So they had to, they had to shoot an extra scene because <laughs> he couldn't have a film ending like that. But no, I right. love Kate Bush. I love her voice. She's got a fantastic voice. And, and that's a very emotional song. And the, the YouTube video where she dances at the end is really great with Kate Bush. Yeah, yeah see, so you... Uh... Do you ever say that to someone? I mean, did you ever think that to someone? Like, uh, you know, we can't end it here. We're going to have to meet again in heaven? Uh, not yet. Give me a bit of time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm All right, 76. well. I'm only 76, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, don't, you know. Don't plan to do any meetings just yet. Well, no, I'm not talking about you going, but, I mean, there have been <laughs> folks that have gone before you. You know, that's yeah. what I'm uh, yeah, All right, anyhow, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, before we get fully into today's discussion, uh, I mentioned before the break that, you know, I wanted to know about this Cold Fusion book that you wrote because, you know, uh, Cold Fusion, it's titled Cold Fusion, The Making of Scientific Controversy. I was in Utah at the time the two researchers made the announcement. It was a big deal in Utah, a big deal to the university. Um, I don't know if you know where they are now, um. Uh, what happened really. as a result? No. One of them, of course, no. is in South America, uh, really? and and maintains to this day that yeah. uh, that it wasn't a fraud. What was your yeah. take on it? Was this intentionally generated fraud? No. Uh, well, the thing was, I was in Japan when, with with a scientific group of Canadians visiting with with Japanese scientists when that came through, and you know, couldn't imagine that the. the the excitement, the controversy of it all. And the other interesting thing was this happened in, uh, in, in 1989, and it was really the first thing that a scientific announcement of breakthrough came through the Internet, through emails. It didn't right. come in the scientific journal. It came through a series of emails, that announcement. And so that made it so rapid. And, and with, without the, the, the sense of, of a published paper, you've sat down, you've been critical, you've had time to think, it just came through instantaneously. So I went to I went to visit Pons and Fleischmann. I was very impressed and spent time with them. And then I went over to the other one and uh, uh, the, uh, with Stephen Jones, who was the other person. And mm-hmm. that was quite contra- controversial because Stephen Jones claimed he didn't know anything about Pons and Fleischmann. So there was that friction between the two groups. But, you know, the, I, I've not followed it in much detail since then, but... There does seem to be quite a few people claiming that it is genuine. It's a genuine effect. Uh, one of the other things was that um, 
we realized that we didn't know much about what was going on in those sort of systems. Uh, it wasn't as clear-cut as with other things. So, so it was controversial. They did claim they got power. And I think, you know, I've got an open mind about it. Uh, I'd be interested to know what happened. But it was a fun book to research and to write. Yeah, I enjoyed that very much. Yeah. It's still quite a controversy in Utah about that. There are a lot of folks it's, that believe that, uh, you know, uh, powers that be didn't want cold fusion. It's uh, too competitive with uh, the petro industry. Da 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 da. Right. And yeah, I'd imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. Basically shut down. Did you see any of that firsthand when you were there working on uh, the book? The, 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 I'm trying to shut it down. No, no. I, I was really was. I was. You know, spent most of my time with Pons and Fleischmann, just in the laboratory talking to them, having dinner, stuff like that. And you know, I was quite impressed. Stephen Jones is a little bit different, um, you know. Uh, he he that was a part in the Mormon area, and so it's yeah. quite a bit different. Yeah. All right, your work is so broad, sir, that I'd like today to generally discuss, you know, a theme, if you will, that I see flows through it and through it all. Oh, okay. And. Uh, you know, well, through it all, with the exception of maybe cold fusion and, you know. But I, I know it's going to be difficult, but perhaps not so difficult if we consider the bottom line to each of the books and yeah. some of the more personal insights you hold. Yeah. If that's yeah. all right, let's sure. begin yeah, yeah. by addressing your association with uh, Nobel laureate David Bohm. You uh, no, co-authored. He, he, didn't, he didn't get a Nobel Prize. Well, Nobel, yeah, he was, that's right, he was, uh, Several he was times nominated, nominated for it, for the yeah. Bohm uh, Aronoff effect, uh, right. but never got it. And I think that was because there's a little controversy about the origins of the Bohm Aronoff effect. Not a, not controversy about Bohm or Aronoff, but about someone earlier. I think that's the reason it was. So it's unfortunately never well, got the Nobel Flesh that out for us, please, because I was going to ask you that. I mean, it's... Uh, there there are those that say the reason David Bohm didn't ever win the Nobel was yeah. because of his involvement with people like Krishnamurti and Uri Geller. And, no, and, no, no, uh, that's not true. It was that someone had seen a similar effect but didn't understand what it was. So the thing was, well, were Aronoff and Bohm the original discoverers of it and, and propose it, or had somebody possibly discovered it before. But it was highly controversial. I think that's why, um, you know, ever, I would be with David Bohm at the Bailey Farms in uh, Austin, New York, when the announcement was coming out. And he would be very tense a few days beforehand, and then that was it. He didn't get it. But I think last year or the year before, there was talk that maybe Aronoff would be awarded the Nobel Prize. But he didn't, he wasn't awarded, so... I think it was about a controversy. Had someone possibly seen the effect before Bohm and Aronoff? I see. I didn't. I mean, but that, I don't think it was anything to do with with with, with uh, Krishnamurti. No. Okay. Well, or Uri Geller. I mean, Bohm yeah. didn't David Bohm carry a key around with him that was bent by Uri Geller? Uh, probably, and he did have invite. Uh, he and the head of the physics department invited Geller into the labs to do some experiments. It was very interesting to change the mass, have a, a crystal field in a vacuum tube and to change the mass of the crystal and all of this. They did these experiments, and then Bohm's uh, colleague, 
Basil Hardy went round to check everything afterwards and found that all the, the apparatus wasn't working properly. The balances weren't working properly. So everything had been... It wasn't clear if, if Galaxy did do it or if he just created a, a, a degree of confusion. And, and Eric Geller himself, of course, is uh, swamped with controversy regarding... Oh, yeah. So the, the, the one thing I saw that impressed me deeply, Yuri, when I was a National Research Council, Yuri Gallup visited us. So he's standing by the elevators, we're set for keys and bending them, but, but you know, we were not at all convinced. We were very skeptical because he was right by the door. How, how did we know, you know, what was going on? But then he took us into the office and said, I want you all to draw something, uh, to draw a picture, and then I will, I will sit here and tell you what you drew. And one guy who was a Greek physicist was very, very skeptical about Yuri Geller. And he went to the far end of the room. Yuri Geller looked up to him and said, I asked you to draw a picture. He said, I have drawn a picture. He said, no, all you've done is drawn a circle. And that Greek <laughs> physicist was so shocked. He was shocked to the core. How the hell did Yuri Geller knew that I drew a circle? <laughs> interesting, interesting. Uh among uh, David Bohm's work was his collaboration with Carl Prebrim uh, regarding a holographic processing of our brain, memory being stored holographically, which, yeah. you know, makes so much more sense than the e-grams and n-grams that yeah. were, you know, the theory at the time. Did you have any involvement in that, any understanding of what, you know, what the work was that the two of them were doing? No, I think the, the, the that was... I was not uh, at Birkbeck. I was not on um, a sabbatical or visiting Bohm when they had that discussion with, 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 with Carl Prebram. But uh, could, I, could I give you an anecdote about Carl Prebram? Oh, please do. Okay. Well, Bohm organized a meeting of Krishnamurti with scientists. So we met uh, down at Brockwood Park for several days, sitting you know, at a table of quite a few scientists. There. One, of them, one of them was Carl Prebram. And at one point, Krishnamurti is saying that my brain is unconditioned, uh, unlike any other brain, it's, 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 it's unique. And at night, there is no movement in the brain, no activity in the brain. And Carl Prebram says, well, Krishna, gee, that's pretty easy. I'll hook you up tonight and see what's going on in there. Gosh, was Krishnamurti annoyed at that. <laughs> he would not allow his brain to be put to too tough any uh, piece of apparatus of Carl Prebram. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I'm gonna. I was gonna take you there next. I, yep. it, my understanding was David Bohm became really involved in Eastern mysticism, and and he was a good friend of Krishnamurti, and they yes. did do some video recordings together. You know, I have a oh, couple a lot. of them. And, and, and what a coincidence you you call me because yesterday a book arrived. It's a new uh, edition of the Ending of Time. Oh, Krishnamurti really? and David Bohm. It's it's the uh, uh -huh. it's the discussions that were that were which were videotaped or right. audio taped. So it's a new it's a new version of the ending of time. But oh yes, there were there were many many video recordings made, and I think audio recordings as well of Bohm and Krishnamurti. And I mean the, the thing was Bohm had heard of Krishnamurti. He went to meet with him, and they they talked. And at some point, the first meeting, Krishnamurti stood up and embraced Bohm and said, "You've seen it." So then Bohm became a, a trustee of Krishnamurti's school at Brockwood Park. He would, you know, um, go to all the Krishnamurti talks. He would have these discussions, these dialogues with Krishnamurti. He was very, very seriously involved with Krishnamurti until Krishnamurti's death. 
Right. He, uh, I mean, basically, my understanding, and, you know, please correct me, is he, he took on a kind of a Buddhist Hindu pantheism, if you will, the Hegel and uh, Alfred North Whitehead form of pantheism uh, as his view of the universe. It, and if yes, that's... Yes. Hegel was very important to him. Our last conversation was about Hegel. Yeah. Unpack that, please. Oh, well, you know, as, as, as a student, he'd be interested in Marx. And so we read Karl Marx. And uh, all his fellow colleagues said uh, Marx had put Hegel on his feet. And then some late time, years later, Bohm starts to break with, 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 with uh, the left and uh, starts, to read, starts to read Hegel and says, Oh, no, <laughs> Marx put Hegel on his head. It was Hegel was the, was, the, was the original thinker. So Hegel and Whitehead were very important for Bohm. So, that, you know, Hegel's the process of Hegel, thesis, right. antithesis, synthesis, yeah, all of that. Right, was and very so do you think that the panentheism or the pantheism of, uh, I should say pantheism, not panentheism, um, of Hegel and Whitehead influenced Bohm's way of viewing the universe? Yeah, I mean, I probably did, but but I don't think there was there was never any sort of I never detected a religious sense in Paul uh, or a spiritual sense. And I know when he uh, was having deep depression, and uh, he'd go to a therapist, and the therapist asked him, "Is there any is there any spiritual or religious?" And, and Bohm says, "Absolutely no. There's none. There's none." But, okay, but in your book, yeah, in your book, Infinite Potential. The Life and Times of David Bohm, and that's oh, what right. we're talking about. I mean, so our audience knows I'm asking you these questions really in reference to two books, Science, yeah. Order, and Creativity, which you co-authored with David Bohm. Yeah. And, and if, if you're out there in the audience and you have not read this book, you must go get it and read it. And your book, Infinite Potential, The Life and Times of David Bohm, Bohm's biography. In that, you portray a man... You know, dismissed by the establishment sometimes as a maverick or a mystic or, you know, someone doing holistic physics. I'll put that in quotation marks. Um, unpack that for us. Please explain how how his contemporaries may have viewed him as this rogue. Yes, well, there's several things there. You know, at one time I remember him being told that Bohm was a troublemaker from start to finish. A troublemaker because he questioned the orthodox physics. Um, when I did my sabbatical with, you know, in London and with Bohm and Penrose, a senior physicist took me out to dinner and said, don't associate yourself with Bohm, it will damage you. And so that was it. That, that, that was the thing that was said about him. Uh, maybe I could add something else. Uh, Bohm, um, Bohm had, when Bohm went to Princeton, he became, he lived next door to Einstein and became very close friends. And Einstein thought of Bohm as his spiritual son. Bohm wrote a textbook on quantum theory which tried to, to express the orthodox interpretation. And afterwards, he began to feel that that orthodox interpretation was mystifying what the nature of quantum reality was. So he developed an alternative approach called Hidden Variables. And he felt when that's published, people won't accept it, but it will generate enormous controversy, and that's what I want. I want things to come out in the open. 
And at this point, he was exiled to Brazil. He didn't know what was happening, but uh, Oppenheimer called a meeting of leading physicists at Princeton. And, and the idea was we're going to find a flaw in Bohm's argument. And at the end of the meeting, uh, Oppenheimer announced, uh, if we cannot agree to disprove Bohm, we must all agree to ignore him. And that's the word went out, ignore Bohm. And that, uh, that was very painful for Bohm. That was, I had met physicists, you know, when I spent time with Bohm, and they'd say, uh, Bohm's theory is wrong. And I'd say, please, would you sit down with me and show me where the error is? They say, oh, I don't know. I've never read the paper. I just know it's wrong. So that was it. And then more recently, maybe six, eight years ago, starting then, there was this revival of interest in Bohm. Oh, yes, we're not rejecting Bohm anymore. Uh, we, we had these different approaches to, to, to um, physics, and the last one was superstrings, going to be the theory of everything in the 80s and 90s, but it really hasn't gone anywhere. It's got stuck. And so people are now looking at Bohm's approaches and taking them seriously. There have been three international conferences on David Bohm. So it, the, thing, the, 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 the feeling has changed from him being a troublemaker, a maverick, uh, you know, somebody who has rejected orthodoxy to someone who had maybe an interesting approach and we should begin to look at. So it's, kind it's of nice remi- to feel that, that, that things have changed. Yeah, kind of reminiscent of the, the story where Galileo brings in the uh, the scientists to look down his telescope and they insist that uh, what they see was painted on the end of it couldn't possibly oh, right, exist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, all right. Let's, let's talk about creativity for a moment share with us what you consider to be the form of creativity and it in particularly its relationship to metaphor i think that's really important in understanding the, in your work well i mean what, what i like what i i mean I, I i've done various things you know i did i did physics uh, for a time and then uh, a number of uh, artists have asked would you would you write a copy for my catalog or would you do this would you do that and what I've always done was, is always said, I want to do something to be challenged to do something I've never, ever done before, something I don't know how to do. That, that's the greatest pleasure for me. If someone will ask me to do something that I've never done in my life and I don't know any, how to do it at all. And that, for me, is where creativity lies, to do something. If you've done it before, you know how to do it, you know, and it's just repetition. But to be challenged with something that you've never, ever done before, and, and that, that for me, it, that's exciting. That, that's what I like. And that's for me where the creativity lies. It's, it's something new. And, and for me, it's, 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 um, maybe lying, you know, lying, going to bed early and just lying on the bed and just feeling that something will come into my mind. And in the morning, getting up and rushing to the computer and starting to write it down. It, it is curious. And I know I give, now I've run this center outside Siena where we have, run courses and there'll be times when I, I'm, I'm giving a course and I'm, I'm talking about something I say something that amazes me oh I've never never said that before I don't know where that came from I just pause and, and just and, and I thank I thank the group the, the, the participants because I think they've produced it for me somehow that atmosphere they produced this creative thought something they've said something in a, in a way I never thought of saying it before and it's completely new so so that's that's the fun part of creativity. You know, I, I would like to make a couple of other comments. Um, oh, please. That the, the way creativity can be destroyed, um, that's one of the things that Bowen and I did on a book, Science, Order, and Creativity, by being rewarded. 
uh, and we find that in school children. The school children are, when they're young, they're doing things because it excites them. They want to do something new, and then they're given rewards. And what they're after now is not to do something that's self-satisfying, but just I want to get a reward. And my wife taught in Canada, uh, and the IBM had been involved in training teachers, and there were a series of verbal rewards you gave to the child. And the most extreme one to the child was, you are worthy of my love. And she was told, he was instructed, she had to sit, stand in front of a mirror and practice saying, you are worthy of my love. And the same thing I've, I've found from a good friend of mine who uh, ran an art school, that again, uh, the young people come in full of creativity, and, and after being there for maybe some months or a year, the creativity starts to go, because they begin to see how you're supposed to paint, what you're supposed to do with your art, not what comes out naturally. So... I think creative is fascinating. fascinating. Your your book, you, you know, create science, cre- creativity, science, science, creativity, in order. I'll get it out. Yeah. Uh, had a, a real impact on just about everyone I know. And at the time, really? oh. I have to tell you this: uh, Professor William Gilory. Uh, started the practice of just getting up early in the morning and writing and whatever wow. came into his mind. And soon that, that evolved into discussions about physics and consciousness. And, uh, and I had the good fortune to be able to read these, uh, you know, fresh off the press, if you will. In those days we weren't typing, we were still writing, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, amazing work that he was turning out. And, 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 you know, I think where William is concerned, he finally decided he was actually channeling something. Oh. But, but initially it was, it was just the creativity and it was extraordinary work that uh, comes when you just allow yourself to, to do as you, as, as you, you suggest. It's a terrific oh. book. It's a must read in my view. Science, Order, and Creativity. I have one more question for you when we come back from the break about that book, and then I want to talk to you about Blackfoot physics. Boy, is that ever a powerful read. If you would like to know more about Professor David Pete, his life, work, and books, visit his website at fdavidpete, that's B-E-A-T, dot com. Now, we have a video for you during the break of our guest discussing his book, Synchronicity, Bridge Between Matter and Mind and the Resurrection of Spirit. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. Inner talk works by priming how you talk to yourself, and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals, anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor David Pete about his life, work, and books, including Science, Order, and Creativity, and his newest, Synchronicity. Now, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. We, uh, <laughs> I like this song, but you tell us, what's up with this one? Why, why is this one important to you? Oh, because, you know, from my childhood onwards, the teenager, then, you know, the, uh, the pieces of paradise that were destroyed by be- building on them. So I love the, 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 the emphasis of the song. They, they p- took paradise and they paved it over and made a parking lot and right. put the trees in a museum. It's so ironic. And another aspect of this song is when I first went to Canada, there was a little club nearby and uh, there was a singer who sang in the club. I never bothered to go. We didn't know who she was. But it's Johnny Mitchell. <laughs> I missed oh, really? going in a club and seeing Johnny Mitchell live before she became well-known. But oh. I love the song. And, uh, yeah. and you never you never miss it until... Uh, in no. fact, you don't even know you no, have it until it's gone. Until it yeah. was too late. Until it was too late. <laughs> yeah, and, and progress there's is... Paul, there's also Paul Anker sang there. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and they, they erected Paul Anker Drive in Ottawa. <laughs> Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah Falanca oh. Drive, yeah. All right. I, I, I promised before the break that I wanted to ask you one more question before we yeah. jumped into Blackfoot Physics. And okay. I just want to, I've got a couple about that because I want to focus on your newest synchronicity. But I suggested at the top there's a common denominator here I want to get to. So uh, let me ask you this. Please explain for our audience, or differentiate, if you will, the difference between the explicate order from the generative order and the implicate order. Okay, these are all ideas of David Bohm. So the right. explicate order would be uh, our everyday, the world, everyday world we see around us in which you have well-defined objects in space and time. They're all well-defined, space and time, and we tend to say that is reality. But, you know, as, as a kid... Um, Bohm, but it's very interesting. He, he he got some science fiction magazines when he was a kid, and he used to think of going to other planets and began to question: Is this world around us really real, or or is it just a, a, like a, an illusion? And when Bohm developed his philosophy, he felt underneath this explicate order, the surface order, lay a much deeper order, which he called the implicate order. And in the explicate order, you have 
matter interacting, you know, by forces and fields, and then you also have mind or consciousness, but they're quite separate. But down in the implicate order, the two are entwined together. And the implicate order he saw as a process, as a constant movement, that the, that the explicate, the world around us is constantly being unfolded out of the implicate and unfolded back again. So it's a constant process of unfolding and unfolding. And so that's the explicate and the implicate order. And the generative order was uh, this idea of, which related to this idea of, of, of the process of unfolding, of coming into being. And then he had, he had another order even below that called the super implicate order. And his feeling was uh, that there would be orders all the way down. Now, it's interesting with, uh, that, as I mentioned, he was very close to Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein felt, you know, God is subtle but not malicious, and we'll find the ultimate theory of the universe. Soon, at some point, physics will find the ultimate theory. And Bohm said, no, below that ultimate theory will be another theory. And below that, another theory. It's inexhaustible. So for Bohm, the universe was inexhaustible. It turned from, from like well-defined objects into processes, where for Einstein there would be one theory. And so when you think, you, you mentioned the influence of, of Whitehead, and Whitehead's famous book was called Process and Reality. So for right. Bohm, process was the art. It, it, was, it was a dynamic, it was a movement. That, that, uh, I could mention something else. When Bohm was, it was a boy... He wanted to find security, and he realized security lies in fixed positions. Then one day he's out in the woods with some friends, and they come to a stream, and the only way to get across is, is to with stepping stones. And he suddenly realizes the only way for me to step is to keep moving. I can't stand on one stone and jump to the other. I have to move. And he, that was an incredible revelation to him, that security lies not in fixed positions, but in movement. And from there, he moves on to process. And so the ultimate level, the implicate order, is, is a series of processes of constantly folding and unfolding. The core of the onion. All right. <laughs> now, Blackfoot physics, and, 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 and I'm going faster. In fact, I guess I, I shouldn't. I'm going to back up. Tell us about Leroy Little Bear and how you became involved with Blackfoot physics. Okay, it's an interesting story. I'm, uh, I was actually looking at a big coincidence or synchronicity. I was looking at a book of photographs of, of native elders in the 19th century when the phone rings and a voice says, this is Leroy Little Bear. We want to invite you to a meeting in a teepee. We're going to have the meeting, and we'll fly you to Calgary and then pick you up and take you to the, the Blackfoot land in Alberta. And uh, I so agreed to go. And then the, mo the day I was to leave, I, I didn't drive to the airport. I thought, it's going to change my life. I can't do this. So I didn't go. and I did, they, they were waiting for me. I didn't turn up. Leroy phoned me the next day and insisted, you must come. I'll get you a new ticket. Uh, by the way, as a side issue, Leroy was very good at this business of getting things. I remember one time driving him to a big hotel in, uh, in the center of Calgary, and Leroy just parks outside the, the front entrance to the hotel, and they say, you can't park there. And Leroy says, oh, I have a reservation. <laughs> He'd always say, I have a reservation. In fact, he lived on one. <laughs> a reserve, maybe they call them in the States, but they call them reservations in Canada. So, yes, I went, and uh, it was, we sat in a teepee, and we talked, and we passed around an eagle feather, and uh, as the feather came to you, you just had to say what was in your heart, and it was a very, very moving uh, experience. And then, 
I went back uh, to the Sundance and stayed at someone's house and was at the Sundance and used to meet in teepees. And, and then uh, I met Lever on a very regular basis, and he would ask me out to every year to Banff. Uh, one year it would be on native self-government, and the other year it would be on native justice. And so I was asked to be there. And to, what they would do, they would have a representative of the Canadian government would explain to them how uh, justice works or this or that. And he asked me to make a, what he called a paradigm shift. I had to challenge it. Not, not challenge what the person has said, but, but shock people with changing the paradigm. And then the elders would come in and talk. And so that's what we did uh, every, every, every year. Uh, until 1992, when we ran this first meeting uh, at the Fetzer Institute of uh, Native Elders meeting with Western scientists and linguists. And then out of that, you know, I wrote this book, Black Book Physics. Right. And so now most people, I think, reading the book, myself included, might come away thinking that you hold the Native American system of science is superior to the Western world. You know, if I've got that wrong, correct me. But if so, you know, flesh that out some for us, will you? I, I wouldn't say it's superior. I would say I said it was it was a different approach, a different approach, and, and less maybe less materialistic, more organic. Um, and it's quite amazing. Could I give a plug for something else? Uh, yes, there's a new book uh, I edited called The Pari Dialogues, Volume Two. The subtitle is Essays in Indigenous Knowledge and Western Science. It contains essays from indigenous people from North America, Australia, New Zealand, Africa, and from the Chinese-Russian border, as well as uh, on the Sufi instruments of perception. And now, is this China, your book? So. Uh, I edited it. You yeah, edited I have an it. essay in it. Okay. So it, 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 I it's have all your books, so that just means I have to go buy that one, too. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it came out was it uh, very, very recently. Uh, Give the title of it again, please. Uh, the Pari Dialogues, Volume 2. Pari? Essays in Indigenous Knowledge and Western Science. And it's published in 2013. Okay, got it. Yeah. So it, right. it's a nice thing. I think it complements Blackboard Physics because it, it has... Uh, and, and one of the greatest uh, uh, things is, is on native astronomy. I mean, it's an incredible what they knew. I mean, they had incredible knowledge. It really is shocking to read it. You know, God, how do they know all of this? <laughs> they didn't have any telescope. And your take on that? Well, the one thing was they, they, they would go down into, they'd build a, like a sort of tunnel, a hole, and sit at the bottom and look up at the sky. So it, in one way, it did act as a sort of telescope. It, it, it You know, it, it cut out all light, and, and then they could. But they, they knew, they knew such a lot, yeah. yeah. And, there you know, the knowledge knowledge of, knowledge of medicinal plants. I, I could say something else, too. I, I moved, I lived in Liverpool, I lived in London, I lived in Ottawa. They were all big cities. And then we moved to this village of Pari, which has about 180 people in it. But the thing is, these people plant according to the phases of the moon. When, when a, the moon in Easter is full and certain seeds are planted, they know about the healing plants. They can go out and get various healing plants. So, in a way, they are indigenous. Now, the people living in Siena and Florence and, and Milan don't know this, but the people in this area and, and surrounding areas know these things. So, they're also indigenous people. They, they know the land. They know they know the seasons. They know they know the the, the plants. 
and the animals. There, so there, there are some professor that uh, that believe that think uh, that we can intuit information without having to physically observe it. Just in the language of our conversation, uh, the implicate order, um, you know, that's behind the explicate. And if it is an extension of consciousness, it may be available to consciousness. So consciousness may have its highest order of creativity, not by the observation, say in this instance of the planets, as with the Blackfoot, but uh, instead with uh, with the implicate. Uh, some people yes. might call that religion. Some people might call it God or whatever. Yes. You're thinking on that. Is that possible? Do you yes, think I think that, that goes I on. I think that's possible, yeah, those alternative, alternative um, abilities of the mind, consciousness. Yeah, no, I think that is true. You intuit things and have a sympathy for things. Knowledge comes in. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And, and the fact that when we live in, a, you know, the, the, the world we live in, I mean, I guess, are, are with, with computers and everything else, are we, are we losing more and more of that sense of the intimacy of being in nature? Um, I could, could tell you something. There's, uh, I, I knew a big funding agency that were funding, one of the things they funded was environmentalism. And they realized that the the CEOs of these big environmental groups uh, lived in the centers of cities. And when they really did the homework on them, they found, well, they'd never actually gone, uh, gone whitewater canoeing or anything like that. <laughs> so in future, if you guys want money, then you have to come for a, a week or a month. You have to come in the wilderness for a week, or I think it was a month. You've got to do whitewater canoeing. You've got to do hiking, the whole thing. You've got to come back to the environment. I thought that was so great. Yeah. Giving I money agree. to people who never actually went out in the environment, as, as environmentalists. I do think, uh, you know, the technology that we're developing today is uh, taking the thought process uh, right out of the equation. You know, it's just uh, Google has a new set of glasses, and I can basically use those glasses to Google anything. So why should I worry <laughs> about committing it to memory or or learning? There's a shortcut for everything. There's you know, yeah. anyway that yeah. that that could be a show in itself. Let's stay yeah. on on Blackfoot physics for a moment, and yeah, and sure. particularly this idea of how they connect. Maybe you know we call it intuitive to just be secular about it for a moment, but um, they're ceremonies. They're actual ceremonies. Tell us how they relate to science. Well, um, you know, the the, 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 the sun dance was really, it was, a, it wasn't, okay, you know, the, the idea is uh, at, at sunrise we'll smoke the pipe at sunrise, and smoking the pipe doesn't cause the sun to rise. Nobody believes that. But what it does, it, it, it reinforces a harmony between, between the, the earth sun and the people, and the same with the sun dance. It's for the whole of the cosmos. Uh, so it, it, it's really to reinforce a harmony. So those ceremonies are, are, to, are, to, are to reinforce or, or to renew a harmony. The ceremonies are renewal. They're, so they're, the... they're different from the Western idea where, where you cause something. By doing something, you're making something happen. You're not making anything happen. You're renewing the relationship. Excellent. So as, as the earth's heart beats, the 
the Blackfoot heartbeats. We we yes. have that kind. Yes. Okay. Now another thing, if we could possibly get onto, is, is, is language. Um, that when David Bohm, um, uh, David Bohm felt that, uh, say when I say our ordinary language, I say the cat chases the mouse. You have a cat, well-defined object in space and time, a mouse, well-defined object, and chasing, which is an interaction between the two. And Bohm says that is identical to the Newtonian worldview, the explicit order, a well-defined object in space and time, interacting via forces and fields. And we'll never understand the quantum reality that way. What you need is, is a language, a process-based language, and which he tried to, to experiment with, and he called it the real mode, the flowing mode. And then, uh, you know, in the last year of his life, when he meets with the Blackfoot and Cree and the Jibway people, he realizes that their languages are incredibly strongly verb-based. And, and their worldview is one of constant process and flux. So he was amazed to see that his vision, that was their life. It's strongly verb-based languages, that everything is processed in flux, that they don't divide the world into categories. When he said, well, don't you have a category of fish? No, there are processes in water. What about trees? It's the sound that the wind makes going through the leaves. So they're all, they're all, they were all verb. A verb, very strongly verb-based worldview. And that, uh, that was a shock to Bohm to find the people actually live that way. And they're, all, they're the, the, the hunting people, the ones that hunt the buffalo uh, have strong verb-based languages. Where, on the other hand, you have the, the Mohawk and, uh, you know, the people, the Iroquois people who uh, don't hunt, and, but they're farmers, and their language is, is very, very rich in relationship to them. So the worldview and the language are very, you know, intimately related. The process theory. How does the that process language? How does that lead to developing the Native American or the Blackfoot in this instance quantum theory? How does where does that interface? Well, I think Bohm felt you know if if, if at some point when um, you know Blackfoot physicists go and do postgraduate work in physics, their view of the quantum theory will be much closer. To what the quantum really is it's, 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 a, it's a process it's not a set of objects it's not a lot of like objects like electrons and protons it's really deep down it's a process and uh, or like the implicate order so that that language would be ideal for that it would be very interesting when someone actually does do that you know try to explain through to the blackfoot language that'd be very interesting have you, have you played with the con- have you played with the concept at all yourself Professor? Uh, well, I don't, didn't really have the language, and I tried to pin things down, and I, I'd say, well, what is a deer? And, and you, 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 Leroy would give this sound, and he'd say, okay, when I hear that sound, uh, and there's a deer, and he said, well, yes, but it, it could turn into a dog. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> because nothing's completely fixed. Very interesting. I, I love that way of thinking. Now, okay, and I love Let's... this idea too that your name changes throughout your your life. When something happens, in you you have a new name. It's not fixed forever. Yeah, I've often argued that I think one of the problems with our language has to do with uh, 
the whole idea of I, you know, how we separate ourselves from everything else in the world. Yeah. And, yeah. But I, I love this. I love the idea of just making language verb, making it yeah. process, leaving out yeah. uh, the noun identification, because it does give rise to a whole new way of thinking. And I'm going to suggest that that's a large part of how you think and how David Bohm thinks. So let's turn now, then, if we can, to synchronicity, the bridge between matter and mind. First, I'm going to ask you... Well, hang on, hang on. It's, it's, it's an, that was the original book I wrote. Right. But, um, uh, now the new book that's come out... I'm going to jump to the new one. I'm going to jump oh, to the new one. I'm going to ask you in a minute why you wrote the new one. But I want to okay. ask you first about the original. And you've anticipated my question, okay? Okay, so... so <laughs> In your original book, Synchronicity, yeah. The Bridge Between yeah. Matter and Mind, you yeah. suggest that um, the implicate, and, and please correct me, the implicate for all intent and purposes is something that science naturally, or though those people who really tune in to solving a problem, naturally connect to. And that it's the explanation, perhaps, behind why... A team of scientists in Russia and a team in the United States working on the same project but unknown to each other can have the same breakthrough at the same time. Have I got that correct? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. Yeah, very. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now then, my question is, why did you write a new synchronicity? Well, um... I, I what I originally thought was I'll just you know like go through the original version or maybe make some corrections. But then, as I as I looked around and thought, wow, wow, there's such a lot has happened since I wrote that book. Uh, one thing was that there's, we know the uh, we know much much more about the collaboration between Carl Jung and the physicist Wolfgang Pauli, and in fact, like the Jung Pauli um, letters have been published. There's quite a lot been published. Uh, other ideas came in. Um, there's a woman called Barnig- Barbara Honiger came up with her idea of the biochemical mind. Maybe we can talk a little about that later on. I'd like to, because uh, Julian James yeah, wrote a but, book but, about that. So, so there, were, there, were new, there were new things that had been happening, and I thought, I have to rewrite the book. And then another thing I wanted to do towards the end was uh, try and um, try and see if it's possible. Could I, could I give a source for something to do? Could I hint at what could be the source of synchronicity? So that was it. It was a challenge to me to write the book, and, and so anyway, it's, 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 it's done. It's been printed, and it's coming out on the twenty-third of December. It took. Okay, you know, I wrote it two years ago. It took take forever to get it published. But, uh, yeah. And we're going to take some time and go through it specifically. Uh, well, I guess after the break, we've got a break coming up in 30 seconds. But uh, I, I, the last thing I wanted, a quick question. For all intent and purposes, everything in the first book, Synchronicity, is just as valid today as it was when you wrote it. The oh, new yeah. book is additive. Have I got that yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's great. Uh, we've got a hard break, as I said. So all of you out there, I, I'm going to tell you this. Every single book that Professor David Pete has written is worth reading. I've got them all except for the essay and the 
prayer dialogues in or, or prairie dialogues, and you can count that I'll go after that one. So I recommend them, and I can't say anything more than that. He is a great writer. He is a great mind, and uh, if you like things that provoke creativity, that give rise to, you know, to me salivating over discovery then you're going to love his work. You can check it out by going to his website, fdavidpete.com. Do yourself a favor and do it today. All right. Uh, we, like I say, we'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now... Back to the show. You are too decent to understand. For when I see When he takes hold of me with his hot hand, someday I know he's coming back to call me. He's gonna handle me and hold me so It's gonna be like dying poor get deep inside me But when he calls I have to go When he Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor David Pete about his life, work, and books, including Science, Order, and Creativity, Blackfoot Physics, Synchronicity, and Infinite Potential. In this half hour, we'll take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your comments and feedback, and a great place for that is Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor 
music, you know, has been shown to wake up dementia patients, Alzheimer's patients. For a moment, it just completely restores full cognitive power. It has tremendous emotional impact. We just played for you, I Loves You, Porgy, sung by Ella Fitzgerald, one of my favorites. So why this one, sir? Well, of course, it's Ella, who I love Ella, fantastic singer. She's amazing. But also George Gershwin. I, I love George Gershwin's music and the opera of Porgy and Bess. But I like all of Gershwin's stuff. The nice thing, uh, I, you know, found about Gershwin is he went to Maurice Ravel and said, please give me some music lessons. And Ravel refused. He said, I, you're a unique approach. I won't touch you. I won't contaminate it. So he, he let him go his own way. And, and I mean, he was... Uh, I mean, Gershwin's great. Rhapsody in Blue was the very first uh, piece of music I bought. It was on a 33 LP that I played on an old turntable. (laughs) You probably remember those little record players, as they were called then. I remember 78. (laughs) <laughs> oh well, I remember him too, but but I was advancing with the okay, all right, you got me. Okay, before the break, we were talking about your new book, Synchronicity. Yeah, and you yeah. just told us that basically everything in the first Synchronicity, you know, for all is true, is correct, yeah. is accurate, yeah. whatever. But you had many levels of of new insights or information that you wanted to add, so. Yes. Let's let's back up for a second. Let's just define synchronicity. What exactly, in your view, is synchronicity? Well, it's 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 a coincidence. Appear apparently a coincidence. Generally, something interior. It could be a dream. It could be a memory. It could be a, a sudden emotional feeling. And something outside it could be a phone call. It could be an unexpected meeting. And the two are linked. And, of course, there are many coincidences in, in life, you know, which are purely random. But the thing about a synchronicity, it, it's, it has an, an emotional effect. It, it, it hits you. It has a numinous quality. So, so the, 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 the numinous coincidences uh, between an inner and an outer, an inner state and an outer state. Uh, and they are to distinguish from just coincidences, which, which happen all the time and don't have any deep meaning. Uh, another thing I think this could be, it's like something calling to you, something calling to you. It also can be like a doorway you open. There's a door, you open the door, or some, it's a meeting with someone. It could be a meeting with someone. Uh, for example, uh, Jung went to meet Carl, uh, Sigmund Freud. They had a meeting, and Sigmund Freud opened a door, into depth psychology for Jung to go into, but Freud couldn't follow him. He didn't want to follow him. So it sometimes can be an encounter, a meeting with a person or a book or a film or a piece of music which opens a door for you. You go through, but the person who opened the door can't follow you. So there are many, you know, many ways of seeing things. This is, but essentially they're, they're, they're numinous. They have a, a deep quality about them. Uh, okay. As to, opposed to, to coincidence. Well, I, I mean, could f- I give you an example of a synchronicity? Please, that's just what I was okay, going to well, ask you. Ca- yeah. Carl Jung had a patient, a woman who was very rational, and uh, he couldn't reach her through analysis. It wouldn't work. And one day she tells him she's had a dream of being given a golden scarab as a present. And he hears a tapping at the window, opens the window, and a golden scarab flies in. 
and the woman is shocked. She says it's the scarabout of her dream has come in the room. And she was shocked to the point where the rationality dropped away and she, got, she opened up to the therapy. So for Young, you know, that was an important moment, the, the scarab, the scarab beetle. Uh, because That's a very good example. Yeah. You, you mentioned before the break, uh, you know, bicamerality uh, yeah. and Barbara uh, Honiger. Honiger, yeah, and her work uh, with the origins of synchronicity by way of, you know, them being founded, I believe, uh, in the right hemisphere of a bicameral mind. Yeah, yeah now, right. Julian Jaynes argued that yeah, you know, right. all of consciousness, yeah. you know, Julian, so you know the yeah, orange yeah. is consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Yeah. You, you know, unpack that for us. How is this possible that that synchronicities have their origin in our brain? Well, um, the idea was that, that way, way back, you know, prehistoric time, well, you know, before that, before any history, uh, there were two speech centers. One in the, the normal one we have is in the left hemisphere, but there was right. one in the right hemisphere. And when that speech center activated, it was as if we were hearing a voice coming from outside us. So it was like the utterance of the gods were speaking to us. Uh, and that's why the, the oracles and yeah. so forth. Yeah, the or- It was the oracle. It was the god speaking to us. So that was coming from the right hemisphere. And then historical changes happened. You know, we... We, we had, you know, various crises we, as human beings in prehistoric times had to face, and that right hemisphere tended to, the, the speech centers tended to shut down. But uh, James and other people have, have this hypothesis that, that the speech center is still there, and during sleep, sometimes that speech center is activated, and we, we hear voices. I do that myself, voices in the sleep. And um, Honegger felt that... Um, that the, the, uh, when syncretists happened, they were coming from the right hemisphere. And, and somehow, now, she says that somehow they can produce uh, these synchronicities, but I don't see how that's possible. I don't. One of the things was, uh, for Jung's definition, was it was called an acausal coincidence. So it is not causal. Uh, everything right. we know in, in physics, all things in physics, there's a cause and an effect. But for Jung, it was, it, there was no cause. You couldn't reduce it to, to something. And, and with this bicameral, it does seem as if she's proposing a cause. So that's something I, I, it's up in the air for me. I, I found it very interesting. And I, and I do, there are cases where people have heard voices um, and there's been a deep influence on them. So it, it's a sort of bit of a mystery, that, that side of it. It's a bit of a mystery. It kind of fits with uh, Bohm's work with Prebrum, though, on the holographic model. You would yeah. have language centers in both sides. It's kind of like dropping two stones in a pond at the same time, developing yeah. that, you know. So that seems to me to make a great deal of sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very it's interesting. Well, I mean, that was one of the things that wasn't around when I first wrote the synchronicity book. I didn't know about that when I wrote my original right. synchronicity book. You mentioned uh, Polly earlier, and yep. uh, you know you you write about his correspondence. Uh, yep. w- flesh that out for us. Tell us about well, Jung and Polly. Okay, pa- Polly was an exceptional physicist. Some people think he was one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. An exceptional physicist. And around about the age of 29, I think it was 29 or 30, his mother committed suicide. Uh, she discovered her father was having an affair with another woman. And then shortly afterwards, uh, the father married this other woman. 
uh, Paulus said he'd married married the wicked stepmother. And he's very much affected by this and starts drinking heavily. Uh, He goes into bars. He argues with with the customers. He gets twice, he gets thrown out of bars. And and that's, I mean, he's her doctor professor in Zurich. He can't behave like that. So he he consults Carl Jung, and Carl Jung uh, finds him. In, in Paul Jung's phrase, he finds him chock full of archaic material and doesn't want to contaminate it, so he gives him to a bidding analysis, a young woman, and she takes him through analysis, and he has a remarkable series of dreams, remarkable dreams uh, about getting away from the father. The father's been too much of influence. The mother offers the father water. The father won't drink it. Uh, and finally has this thing, a, a dream, a wonderful dream of harmony. It's called the vision of the world clock. And that, that for him was a supreme spiritual experience and changed his life. He did continue to go into analysis and then had analysis with, with Carl Jung and, and remarkable dreams. But the thing was, he now had begun to see that while his life work still was physics, the other side of his life work was to find uh, a link between matter and psyche. And to, uh, to this end, he tried to develop what he called a neutral language, which applied equally to to psychic events and to material events. So he was working strongly with, with Carl Jung. And the other thing the influence on Jung was this, that Jung tended to be a bit flaky, was interested in all sorts of things like the paranormal, parapsychology, telekinesis, all of that. And uh, Pauli felt he shouldn't be contaminating synchronicity by getting involved in all these other areas. He should keep it straight. So he tries to get, keep Jung on a straight path. So he has a good influence on Jung, and all this comes out, as you can see, in the Jung Pauli letters, and biographies have been written about Jung and uh, the relationship between Jung and Pauli. So that was all stuff I wanted to include in, in the new biography, the, the, the role Pauli played in trying to keep Jung and the straight and narrow. Tell us about the translation of the I Ching and uh, the new translation and how that enters into the discussion of synchronicity. Okay, well, um, I, my good friend, uh, Santana Sabadini, is he, Italian. Uh, at the moment, he's living in, in Spain. But he uh, joined, there's a thing called the Eranos Institute, which is formed by Young and others up in Switzerland. And he became part of the staff of the Eranos Institute. And one of their jobs was to make a new translation of the I Ching. And he was working with, with a colleague on that. The colleague was old and died. And containers continued to make this translation. The thing about it is, is it's not, in a sense, a literal translation. You'll, you'll have a character uh, in, in, in the Chinese language which can have many meanings or resonances. So what he's done was uh, to say, say the, the, the wise man doesn't do this. Uh, what he will say, it, it will give several versions of what that can say, several resonances. Uh, so it's a very different form of the I Ching. It's not just a simple statement. It, it gives right. all the resonances and enables you then to to go deeper into the meaning of the I Ching. So, so that is his I Ching, and I wanted to discuss that and bring that into the Synchronicity book, the, the I Ching, uh, and also to make a link between that with the... Well, the origin of the I Ching is interesting because it was the idea of the, the emperor in the Shang Dynasty, used to take a tortoise shell, a, tur- a turtle shell rather, and apply hot brands to it to, for it to crack. And then he would interpret the cracks as regarding what is happening today, the weather, 
or should we go to war? And they, these were all recorded, written down. So every day he would he would consult the Turtle Oracle uh, of the cracks, and that, and then from that comes this myth that a turtle came out of the river with cracks on its body, and that led to the the, the I Ching. You know, the I Ching is uh, you you have you have six uh, figures of broken and unbroken lines. So mm-hmm. that that relates to the I Ching, and in my book. I also wanted to relate that to the bone oracle of, of the uh, people from, from northern Labrador. What they'll do is they'll take a, a bone, a caribou bone, and they'll put it by the fire, and it will make cracks. And they can use those cracks to try and determine uh, where caribou can be found. And there's an interesting <laughs> sideline there that the, uh, that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation were making a film um, of the bone oracle, so they filmed the oracle. They filmed them working with the bones, and then they went to, fly, to in a plane to fly to to shoot some caribou, but they couldn't find any caribou. So the story I heard from a friend who worked with with, with, with these people was that they had to go back and say, "Would you do the bone oracle again and tell us where we can find caribou?" Mm-hmm. So those uh, are sort it? of alternatives to synchronicity. They they, they par- move parallel to synchronicity. When you look at synchronicity <clears throat> and you think about divination, period, yeah. it could be the I Ching, it could be the Tarot, yeah. it could be the Rune. Yeah. I mean, for that matter, it can be dousing for water. Okay? Yeah, you're right. There, yeah. there is this uh, implied behind that, there is this assumption that somehow the mind is able to connect, interface with matter, and yeah. matter thereby gives us the information that we're seeking for. Now, you know, the broader the definition, I suppose, the more one could argue that, psychologically speaking, we're just fitting it to our own expectations, our own beliefs, our own needs, our own whatever. But in in some instances, um, that may be true. It doesn't always seem to fit. Do you think that divination, per se, is indeed a valid example of synchronicity, mind, and matter? Yeah, I, th- I think I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that, that makes good sense, yeah. Could I give you an example of a synchronicity that happened to me? I would. Please do okay. that, Okay, well, uh, when we moved from Canada to Italy, we packed a lot of our stuff in big cardboard boxes. And we put in a storage place, and, you know, some of, we got a lot of it out, but some of them were just left there. A couple of years ago, at Christmas, I thought, oh, let's, let's see what's in one of these boxes. So I got the box down, and it was a lot of little audio tape uh, cassettes, audio cassettes made by a friend of mine from school called Stuart Ogilvy. And he was a very funny character. He was always making fun of the, of the, you know, the kids and the teachers and everything. And on uh, New Year's Eve, I thought, I'm going to listen to these. So I put them on, and there was about two hours of this stuff, maybe two and a half hours. I said to him, this was amazing, because I hadn't seen Ogilvy in years. Like, it brought him alive. He was here in the room with me. It was mm-hmm. incredible. The next morning, I got an email from his son saying my father died last night. Oh. That, that staggered me. Because, I mean, he was alive. He was with me in the room. Uh, at the you know, and I gone. and I think, Professor, most of us, if we've we've lived anything any of our life yet, uh, yeah. can look at our life and see events of that nature 
that have occurred with ourselves, you know. One writer on your book said, uh, and I'll quote, synchronicity, this is your new book, synchronicity shatters causality as being capable of applying to the entire macrocosm, close (laughs) quote. Do you think that's that's a fair assessment, sir? That's very nice. I didn't know that. Yeah, I I don't remember seeing that. No, that's very nice. (laughs) It it is a wonderful comment. Thank you. And, and I think it is. I think it is very accurate. I think you know. And and I suggested, and I'm going now to ask you the question. Uh, Sixty-four thousand dollars. You're old <laughs> enough to remember that show. Yeah. Um, you you know, for me, your career began. It didn't obviously, but it began with the introduction to to science, order, and creativity. And behind all that and going forward, everything that we have discussed today, there is this connection of there must be an implicate order in order to explain the phenomena that we can't causally explain in our explicate universe. Have I, you know, have I made a fair assumption about an undergirding philosophy you have, sir? Yeah, the the the, the explicate universe is limited. Uh, you know, it's funny. This may sound a bit crazy, but but uh, you know, the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. I always thought there was a parallel between him and David Bohm, because he believed we we uh, we inhabited uh, a universe that had been created by a demiurge. It was less than ideal, and beyond it lay a more ideal universe which is very close to Bohm's idea of this explicate. It's just a surface, and beyond that is something much deeper. Yeah. And it it, it would explain a lot of the other work that's out there, like Rupert Sheldrake's. I know you yes. talked yeah. about that. And, you know, how dogs, we've had Rupert on the show a couple of times, how dogs know when their owners are coming home. Uh, this whole connection to the implicate, uh, yeah. That would be the way that you would explain, or and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that yeah, would no, be no, a... No, no, I think that, and, and, and the, you know, Rupert Sheldrake's morphic fields also, that that makes a connection to the implicate right. and explicate. Yeah. Right. The fields, the fields of habit that grow up. Okay, we don't have a lot of time, and I've got a lot oh. more questions, and there are questions in the chat room. Uh, but before I jump to those, and I will question you right out to the last minute, because I wish we had three <laughs> or four hours, what I do want you to do is uh, take a moment to tell us about the Perry Center and yep. about your website and how people can learn more about your activities, your work, and how they can contact you, reach out to you, et cetera. Yep. Well, they can certainly go to www.parisenter.com. Uh, and center spelt the English way, C-E-N-T-E-R. So www.parisenter.com. Uh, we, we created it in the year 2000. We've run, uh, usually run three courses a year, one on new paradigms, new science, another one on synchronicity, another one on the connections between art, science, and the sacred. We've also had quite a few international conferences, um, we have a visitor's program where people can come. There are a lot of uh, furnished, empty houses. People can stay for a week or a month, come and paint, come and read, come and work, or, or come and mentor with me, and, you know, we, can, we have a mentoring program. Um, and so we have a, you know, with the village hall where the late, local women will cook and serve dinner. And uh, There's lots of walks, you know, very nice walks in the area, and you can get a bus into Siena, a bus into Florence. Uh, so 
it's it's uh, it, it's it's a beautiful area, and uh, we have a palazzo at the top, which is uh, where we have our meeting rooms and a coffee room and a library, and uh, yeah, we've got very nice facilities, and it's a very nice arrangement because the village don't charge us for the palazzo; they should do, but they don't because we bring people in who go to the local shops, who go to the local restaurants and spend money and who rent houses from the local people. So we're bringing income into the village. Uh, and in return, they allow us to have this palazzo for free. So it's a win-win situation. Yeah, very good one. And your website, quickly, sir? Uh, com. Uh, and your personal website, uh, I've given uh, several uh, com. Okay, and, uh, you know, I just put the Perry Center on my bucket list. You know, mentoring oh. <laughs> with you, that would be a dream come true. I okay. mean, and, all right, I'm sorry. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest. Thank you, Professor, and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let me know. And they can be bad comments or good. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.